Well, good morning. Good to see everybody here today. If you have your Bibles, you can turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 17 to 34. Just one thing by way of reminder, we are currently in a series on the church uh, since September called that we've entitled Body Life. And we came up to the ordinances. Tim talked about the ordinance of baptism. And today I'll be talking about the ordinance of communion that we're going to be taking. And, and then what we're going to do, we're going to take about a three-week break. Um, we're still going to preach to you the next three weeks, but the, the sermons will not be around the church. They'll be around the holiday season. So they'll be more in the area of, about Christmas. So we'll be switching gears for the next three weeks in, in our preaching series. And then in January, we'll come back and finish off this series on body life. Just so you kind of know where we're going there. I have a confession to make. Um, I grew up in the church. Became a Christian at the age of eight. And I, I don't know what your experience was. But I, um, I didn't always look forward to communion service. I, actually, it scared me a little bit. Because normally what would happen is the pastor would open up the scriptures to 1 Corinthians 11, and he would begin reading in verse 27. <clears throat> and he would say something like this, So then whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord unworthily will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of Christ. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body will drink judgment to themselves. That is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have died. That was normally what was read to me as an 8 to 10 to 12-year-old. And to be honest with you, I kind of dreaded it, and I would often take the cup, shaking a little bit, wondering, am I worthy? Um, is there an unconfessed sin in my life? Am I going to get run over by a car when I walk out of here? Did anybody else ever have those concerns? Or is it, maybe it was just me growing up. This is this is the passage we would come to, and I'd hear those words, and at least that's how I processed it. And so, therefore, it wasn't so much a celebration time for me. It was very introspective, and at times, frankly, quite scary. So what I want to do today is I want to walk through the text, but I want to do it a little bit differently because I, I'm convinced of this, and, and so I, I want you to really work with me on this. I'm convinced if we're going to really understand this text, we've got to step back into the first century and really see what it is that Paul was saying to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 11. And, 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 and feel it, and, and, that, and there will be certain things that I'm going to talk to you about from, from, from the Church of Corinth, and you're going to say, well, I don't do that at all. And I'm going to say, that's a good thing. That's a really, really good thing. And so we want to really understand that world. And then we're going to take a step back into 
our world and to our day and ask ourselves, so what are the ramifications about what he said to them for us today as we take communion? Does that make sense? So we're going to take two journeys here. We're going to spend the biggest part of the journey back then. But we obviously have to get back to our day. But the reason I want to spend a fair amount of time here is, if you're like me growing up, I didn't really understand what was encircling this text. And so the clearer we can be here, the better we can make an application here. Does that make sense? So come with me for the journey. And I'm going to start out with a picture. Talk to you a little bit about the ancient world. Um, I don't know if I'll read all of this. I have, have different things down here. But, but hopefully you can kind of see this. <laughs> this is what is sometimes called a Roman villa or a domus, but doesn't matter. Th- this, this would be the home of a wealthy person in the first century. And, and, and archaeologists that have done a fair amount of study into some of these things suggest to us, for instance, in the city of Rome, For every one home like this, a a single dwelling, big place for a wealthy person, there would have been about 25 what what they called an insulae or what we would call an apartment complex, which is where most people lived. By far, most people lived in apartment complexes. Now, there are some windows there, but for a lot of people, if you're in the internal, you wouldn't even have a window in, your, in the place where you stayed. It would be very simple. It could be one room, maybe two rooms. Very simple way of living. And then you had these fancy homes where they had a whole host of bedrooms, and they had a little area where it would gather water. You see there on the left, and they had gardens and pretty nice stuff. You know what often happened in antiquity? And, and, and others outside of the Scripture complained about this. This is not unique. Let me see if I can do it like this. Everybody over here, you are the haves. You got it. Social status, wealth, there's the haves. Everybody else, is the have-nots. You live in an apartment complex. Some of you are free. We would call you free men. Some of you used to be slaves, and so we call you freed men. Another of you are slaves. So if we could graduate the whole thing, the haves, the have-nots, the free men, freed men, and slaves. Okay? Not at all unusual in antiquity to find these kinds of things. What happens when the haves living in their homes invite people in for a meal? Well, often like in our day, but definitely in their day, there was a pecking order. And so you have people who are for a meal, the best food, the best wine, goes to everybody there. Somehow, Tim Huff got invited to this thing. You do a couple things with Tim Huff. Number one, at best, he's going to get the scraps. 
well, you know, they're going to get the all-out meal. And, and they're, they're, it's interesting. There's a whole bunch of, there's different things that have been written from antiquity. And one of the guys was saying, I can't believe it. We go to this meal, and they get the very best food, and we get just bread and drippy this and the worst kind of wine and just griping and complaining because there was a whole pecking order. And if a slave ended up, you're not getting anything. You'll get a little bit more, and you get a little bit more, you guys will get the best. And so you're living in a world where there's a pecking order based on wealth and social status and the entire thing. And so when you have people over, you're thinking, that person can sit in the room with me and get the best. We'll put other people out by the garden or by the pool. Well, being by the pool is not a bad thing sometimes, I suppose. But in that world, it means you weren't the best. You guys, at best, would be out by the pool. That's, that's how it worked. And th- there's certain rooms, you can't actually see them there, but there's certain rooms where they would have these kind of couches you could kind of lay in and you would get the best service. And that was the best place to be because that's where the host was and you guys got the best. Everybody else? Outside. Christianity came into Corinth God began a work of transformation in their lives. But it didn't change everything overnight, did it? And so this mentality of the haves and the have-nots, privileged eating, scraps, infiltrated the church. Something else. Often in antiquity, when they would have what we call the Lord's Supper, they would connect it with the meal. And one of the reasons for that is because when you initially had what we call Passover meal, which Jesus turned into his supper, and what he said is for Passover, the Jews would celebrate these kinds of things. They would eat bread and they would drink the cup in the context of a meal. And so in Christianity, you often kept the meal connected to the Lord's Supper. Kathy, aren't you glad we don't do all that today? Like, every time we'd have communion, we'd have to have a potluck, right? Okay, you see, so, so, but, but in their world, they kept all that stuff connected. Now, be thinking about that now when I read the text. Because what happens when we read the text often, we don't realize that that is the context out of which everything's going to happen here. What happens for people who are Christians, the haves, to begin to have their minds transformed about how they treat the have-nots? And specifically when it comes to this, what we call the Lord's Supper or communion. So to help us think our way through it, let me give you a really simple outline for this passage. Okay? And what you'll find is this, Paul, in a very, very clear way, he's going to start with the problem. And twice in this passage, he's going to say, I cannot praise you for blank. But in saying that, he's going to do two things, which is so fascinating. When you think of the communion, when Paul thought, thought of the communion service, he thought at two levels. There was the horizontal level, which means this is something we do, not that merely I do. There's a communal aspect to it. 
So Paul is going to talk about the problem first horizontally. Paul's saying, you're coming to the communion service and you're not understanding us. And he's going to switch gears. He's going to say, you're not understanding the cross. Because if you understood the cross and you understood the body of Christ, Christ's people, it would change everything. So he starts with the problem, and then he moves to the solution. And he's going to tell them then, therefore, what should they do, first of all, vertically in the relationship with God, and then horizontally in the relationship with one another. You see? So he deals with the problem horizontally, vertically, deals with the solution vertically, horizontally. And that's pretty much the passage, but I'm still going to talk about it. <laughs> so let's walk through it. I'm just going to leave that up just so you can stay kind of oriented with what we're doing. But again, don't forget, you guys, for the entire service today, you're the haves. Okay? The whole service. You can be as rich and as important as you want. It's just that it all ends in about 30 minutes. Okay? But for now, you get to do that. And everybody else? We're all the have-nots because the majority, when Paul talked at Corinth, he didn't say not any noble, not any rich. He said not many. So there were a group like this in the church, but the bulk was everybody else, okay? All right, so watch what he does here. Let's start in verse 17. Paul begins by saying this. I'm reading from the NIV. In the following directives, I have no praise for you. Now, now, let me just make a quick comment on that. I, there's so much. This is such a good text. It is so interesting to me because in the beginning of chapter 11, Paul is dealing with a whole series of worship issues in the church in this section of Corinthians. And he's going to be dealing with the issue of women having their heads covered, uh, uncovered during the worship service in, in the beginning of the chapter. And he has to deal with that whole thing. That's a complicated thing. We're not going to get into it. But one of the things that fascinates me with all the struggles that they were having with that whole situation in, in the beginning of chapter 11, Paul says, I praise you that you're getting together for worship. But when he comes to communion, he says, I can't praise you at all for what you guys are doing. Wow. Paul, what's, like, what's going on? For your meetings do more harm than good. Well, can you imagine that? It would be better if they didn't gather together. Can you see how serious this is to Paul? In the first place, and now he's going to be dealing with the horizontals. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. Now, that's, that's kind of a, I have to tell you, that they're tricky verses to interpret for a variety of reasons. But I think what Paul is saying is this. You know, it doesn't surprise me in a world of haves and have-nots where people don't understand the essence of the gospel 
that you will have people using others and there'll be divisions and separations and inappropriate relationships. And, and frankly, God will use all of that to ultimately show us who his real people are because they won't allow those social divisions to ultimately divide them. So Paul says, I hear about this, and knowing what I know about Corinth doesn't surprise me at all. Can I, can, can I say something to the haves over there? It, it's interesting. Um, one of the things that archaeology has told us about Corinth, and, and not that you don't find it everywhere, but it's, I mean, it's like that Visa commercial. It's everywhere when you go to Corinth. There are these placards where, where all these buildings are given in, in, in honor of Sandy Wagner. It's, that's the Sandy Wagner building. Because, and, and this is all made up because Sandy's not all like this. But because she's part of the have group, so you become the example here today. Okay. And, and, and it just means that Sandy wants you to walk by that building and say, that one's named after me. I, I, I financed that thing. And that's part of the world that they're living in. So Paul knows all that. So he says, I can kind of understand how some of that stuff happens. He gets more specific. Look what he says here in verse 20. So then, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. Why? We have juice and bread. And Paul says, you can call it whatever you want. But it's not that. Well, Paul, what is going on? Look at what he says. For when you're eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? He's on the horizontal right now. Do you see it? He's talking to you halves over there. I feel bad because I feel like I'm really coming after you guys. But this is all for a point, right? I'm, but he looks at the halves over there, and, and what he knows is this. They're coming together into this home. And one of the things they're doing, it's kind of like a potluck. People are bringing their own food. And you're eating so much and sharing so much among yourselves, probably in one of those smaller rooms. There's probably only 10 or 12 of you doing this. Smaller room. You're having a grand old time eating and gorging yourself and getting drunk. Steve is out by the pool, and he's as hungry as can be. He gets nothing. And in that context, everybody gathers around and says, let's do communion. And Paul says, this isn't the Lord's Supper. This is merely your own supper. Because all you're th thinking about is yourself. And how important you are. And how unimportant Steve is and everybody else in the congregation. 
Do you see? And, 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 and Paul is saying, you, you are making a mockery of this by the way you treat one another. It would be better if you didn't have the Lord's communion when you got together, if that's what you're going to do. Do you see? This is all about this horizontal relationship. And he's saying there is this total misunderstanding that in Jesus Christ, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male and female. I mean, you can go right down the line. And what Paul says is to be part of Christ's body, the people of God. We should never come into a room and should say, you know, Steve, Steve. He has nothing to offer, Finkbeiner. Who has time for him? At best, you get, you get scraps from me at best. Do you see what I'm doing? I, may, I have no idea in that moment. And look, folks, culture is so powerful. In all honesty, these haves, these people are Christians. But that culture was so strong in them, they had to be better than Steve. That guy's a slave. I mean, Tim Huff's a little bit better. You know, he's a free man. But, but still, he has no, nothing financially. It's a pecking order. And the gospel is supposed to come in, and what Paul would say is, no. No. At the foot of the cross, we are all brothers and sisters in the same family. That's it. And so, Steve, when I bring that potluck, if he doesn't bring a potluck, I dump it into whatever I dump it into, however Kathy does these things, and we all get it. Matter of fact, I let Steve go first. And Paul is telling the Corinthians, you guys, you can't do communion this way. This is not the Lord's Supper. It is nothing but your supper. Because all you're thinking about is yourself. That's pretty powerful, isn't it? Then he switches gears and he talks about the vertical. Go back to the outline there. Sorry, too far. In verses 22b through 27, he switches gears to the to vertical. Look at what he says. What shall I say to you at the end of verse 22? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. Paul says, there's nothing about your gathering which makes any sense to me. And Paul says, let me tell you why. I want you to think deeply, vertically, about what communion is all about. I, I want you to think about the one who first gave it to us. I want you to think about what he said it entailed. I, I, I want you to know why he said you should do this again and again and again and again and again until I come back. I, I if you understand this and the problem here, maybe we can resolve this so we can then resolve this. Make sense? I can't praise you. This is why. Let me talk to you about what the essence of communion is. Verse 23. For I received from the Lord 
what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. On that night, when he knew he was going to die. And the only word to explain people around him is the word betrayal. And perhaps the other word we could throw in there is denial. What does he do? He takes the bread. And, and when he had given thanks, what amazing to you. Jesus is thanking God, the Father, for the privilege of dying for those that betray him. It's an amazing thing. He broke it, and he said, don't think of Passover anymore, because I am the fulfillment of all of Passover. No, no, no. This is my body which is for you, implied, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The entire experience of what Jesus does when he converts Passover meal to the Lord's Supper, he says the entire act is an act of self-sacrificial love for those who are against me so that I might bring them into my kingdom. That, that's, that's the essence, isn't it? It goes on to say this. In, in the same way after, after supper, because again, remember I said there was a meal tied in with the Passover. After supper, he took the cup. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Folks, do you know what he's saying? When he talked about the bread, he said, my body, which was broken for who? For you. I, I love you. I have died for you. It's all about sacrifice for you. This cup, it's the new covenant. The what? The new covenant. Do you mean we're not under the old covenant anymore? No, we're not. Th doesn't the new covenant talk about the fact that God will give us of his spirit? Yeah. And he will transform us from the inside out, from the heart out? Yeah. Th doesn't it mean that we're, we're all priests trying to then declare the glory of God to the world around us? Yeah. It's all that stuff and more. God says, Jesus says, with my death, there is internal transformation that changes everything about the way you live. I, I love you. I want to redeem you. Even though you're my enemy and you don't think about me or you're against me, I love you. And when you come, you will know transformation that only I can bring into your life. That's what this is all about. 
And the haves were just thinking about, I want more to eat. And Paul's saying, what? The problem is, you don't remember any of this. And what I want you to do is on a continual basis when you come together, ask yourself, what does it mean to enter so deeply into that that it changes how I react to you? You see? He goes on to say this. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Do you know in a couple minutes, hopefully it'll be a couple minutes, I'm trying to hurry here, but anyway, you know how that goes. Um, in a couple minutes, what we're going to do will be an ongoing reminder and proclamation. To who? Well, to us. And anybody that comes in and sees what we are doing. I mean, think about a visitor coming in that has never seen anything like this before. They're going to go like, well, that's kind of weird. They don't even give you that much to eat. It's just like a little thing, a little cracker. A little, I mean, juice, that's enough just to whet your appetite at best. And, and what we want them to do is ask questions. Why do you do this? Wait, why? Like, what, what is the, you, you pray, you sing, you reflect, you think, you pray, you do Like, what? It's, it's kind of weird. No, it's really not. We are so lost in the gospel of Jesus Christ and the cross that we want you to know on a continual basis, we keep saying, the one who has died for us is alive and he's coming back. Right? And we will proclaim that until he does. We think, we remember the death of the living one, our living Lord. And so we proclaim it. So Paul says, look, that's what it's all about, right? And look at, it, look at what, he, what he says then when he follows up with that there in verse 27. Look what he says. So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. Do you see what he's saying now? Does that mean when we come to the communion service, i got to stop and think, think, Biner, are you worthy enough? Am I ever worthy enough? How would I ever know that? No, that's not what Paul's talking about. He's saying halves. Do you realize when you come and you celebrate this in that larger meal, the way you're doing it, you're, you're, you're practicing the Lord's Supper in a way that is out of keeping. It's unworthy. It's not fitting. It's, it's not consistent with the very message of what he's actually doing. And you are, have made yourself liable for the body and blood of Christ. Do you see why? Because if this is all about, you have forgiven me. You are changing me and you are changing us. And you go, who cares? Are you any better than those that put Christ on a cross and said, who cares? 
because they didn't care about what it represented. And Paul says, that's a terrible place to find yourself. So when he talks about doing this in an unworthy manner, it's not about you trying to conjure up every last sin that you've done and saying, until I figure it out, I can't do this. That is not what this text is about. This text is about entering deeply into what that's about. But we all come unworthy. We all come humble. So that in the midst of remembering, we are drawn to him. And yes, we will often repent. And yes, we will celebrate in thanks. Yeah, it's all of that. The reason this was unworthy is because of what the haves were doing to everybody else and not understanding the real message of what this entails. Make, does that make sense? Okay. Real quick. Well, somewhat quick. In verses 28, then, to the end, Paul gives a solution. A series of commands. Doesn't have any imperatives up to this point, but now we have a whole series of commands, several commands. What should we do? Verse 28, everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body, eat and drink judgment on themselves. That is why many among you are weak and sick and a number have fallen asleep. So is he saying to the haves, um, you can't do this? Or is he saying to the haves this, what I ask you to do is discern and evaluate yourself and discern the body of our blessed Lord who died for you on the cross. If you start allowing that to just overflow, overwhelm you. Just take it in. Take it in. Take it in. Then, that'll change the way you treat Steve over there. Because Christ died for him too, and he's also a brother in Christ. Think differently about yourself. Think differently about what Christ has done. And that will change the way you treat one another. And then, come and take of the communion. Evaluate yourself. Discern yourself. Discern the body. Three commands woven all the way through this passage. What happens if we don't? There is discipline. I mean, is it true in their case that some of them died because of the way they were treating one another in this most sacred of exercises that the church is supposed to go through. Yes. Some were sick because of it. Yes. Because we make a mockery of the cross when we flippantly come into it and think, who cares, get through it, whatever, I don't care how I'm treating me. We make a mockery of it. So Paul says, think about this. Think of the cross. Think of yourself. He goes on to say this. Look at verse um, 31. But if we were more discerning, 
with regard to ourselves. We would not come under such judgment. There's hope for you guys. The haves over there. Be discerning. Think much of Christ. His kingdom. What he has created in you among us. And there's no judgment for you then. You don't have to be perfect. It's about a matter of being oriented to the right one. He goes on to say this. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. You know why some of the haves died? You know why some of the haves got sick? Because God hated them? Oh, no. Oh, no, 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 no. God loves them. And as his child, he will discipline you even if it means that so that you will never be condemned with the world that doesn't know Christ. Some of these have, Steve, are a pain in the neck, aren't they? Steve's had some problems with this. He's talked to me about this personally. This is all made up. And, 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 and what, what this text reminds us about, as much as some of those people over there are real buggers, you go like, I don't know, I don't like. For those that are true children of God, God still loves them even though they make a mockery of what Christ has done. And his discipline is not because he hates them, it's because he loves them. And they will never be condemned with the world that has never come to Christ. That's marvelous, isn't it? I mean, would you think at this point God would say, fine, fine, you're out. Get out of here for something. That's what some of us would do. Not God. For those that are bought by his son, he is committed to love you to the end, no matter what that means. Paul then ends in verses 33 and 34. Remember I said he's dealing with the vertical? Evaluate yourself in light of the cross. Because then you will embrace believers because of the cross. Look at verse 33 and 34. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. Sandy? You're going to have to have Stephen on this meal. That's what I'm telling you. That's what I mean. I'm just telling you. That's what Paul says, right? Anyone who is hungry, because apparently, um, who can I pick on here? Tim, can I pick on you? Okay, Tim, I'm going to pick on Tim. Tim's, Tim's a good guy. We're friends. At least we were up until this point. Tim, Tim has an issue. Um, Tim has quite an appetite. And when he gets together for this potluck, he wants to eat right away. He doesn't want to wait around because the, the problem is like John Baker over here. John's a slave. He can't get there on time. He's getting there a little bit late. So Tim is saying, I don't want to wait for John. Who cares? Whatever. Now, this text is saying, no, you, you wait. You wait. No, no, no. No, I'm not going to wait for him. Let's have at it now. And you know what? They don't need to eat anyway. Just us. And this text says, uh-uh. Tim, if you're really hungry, Eat something before you come. So when we get together, you can actually be in a mindset that says, how can I give 
to John Baker, to all the have-nots, and not listen to your stomach rumble the whole time. It's very practical, practical advice he gives. But you see how he's going back to the horizontal. Anyone who is hungry should eat something at home so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. I don't want this, Paul says. I want you to come together and for a blessed celebration. And then he ends by saying this, and when I come, I will give further directions. And I think Paul's just thinking like, that's probably enough to start with, with this group. <laughs> you know, I mean, when he got to the Corinthians, I'm sure he had other things like, hey, he's like, look, let's start with the most generic, basic kinds of things. All right. So what do we want to say? Well, I hesitate to put this down because it's so long, but it is one sentence. I like to try to take a message and be able to put it into one sentence. So I'll read this quickly. You're going to forget most of it, so I'll give you another one that's shorter. All right. Here's what I think Paul is saying. After Paul exposes the seriousness of wealthier Christians' violation of community at the Lord's Supper, both by their disregard of others within the church and their devaluating of the significance of the Lord's Supper, he exhorts them to examine their practice in light of the cross and to live as a caring community so as not to experience God's judgment. Now, that's a mouthful. But that would be the sermon in a sentence. And you're saying, why didn't you give us that at the beginning? And we could have moved on quickly. Let's come back to our world briefly. And I think this is what I would say. Because here's my guess. This has never happened at the chapel. It's never come in that, you know, we, we all came down and, I don't know, somebody... Somebody came up and sat beside, uh, oh, who should I pick on? Willie. Sat down beside Willie, and Willie looked over and said, uh, would you mind moving down a couple seats? I, we're, I, I really don't want to sit near you. Could you, like, go. Go, go get away from me. That person drives me crazy. We're, plus, we're having communion today. Shoo. And it never has happened here, has it? So what does this mean for us? Let us enter so deeply into the significance of the Lord's Supper by remembering the sacrificial love and transformational nature of our living Lord's cross work, both within us and among us, that it impacts our relationship with both fellow believers and unbelievers. Yeah, we didn't have their exact same problem. Matter of fact, we didn't. Although I will tell you this. There are times when I've come to the communion service and for the entire service, my mind is a million miles away. Thinking about grading I have to do that week, visiting, meeting a student, that issue. Are the Eagles playing this afternoon? Do you know? So no, I, I haven't done quite that. But I have sat through the communion service and not reflected afresh on the wonder of Christ. Yeah, I have done that. I had to tell you, tell you. And I'm still here. But this is what Paul would call us to, I think. I mean, if we could bring Paul up here today, he said, look, I want... 
want you to do this all the time. Again and again and again and again until I come back. Because I don't want you to ever forget this incredible love that transforms you in all of your relationships. The Lord's Supper is a reminder and a proclamation of our cross-centered lives as a loving community until the Lord returns. If I could just like put it into a nutshell, I think that's probably it. Lucas had us sing today, come let us adore him. Come, come to Bethlehem. And I guess what I might say today is, come, come to the table. Don't you say, I, I'm, I'm not perfect, Finkbeiner. Then none of us could take it because none of us are. It's a time when we come as those who have been forgiven, who still struggle like the Dickens. And we enter in a humble, fresh way, and think much of our Lord. And as we reflect, maybe we think about how we treated our wives or husbands that week. God, you loved me so much. How could I have done that to her? What was I thinking? God, your spirit is changing me from the inside out, and I've been resisting. Will you forgive me? Yeah, yeah, that's what happens too. It does. And in the midst of reflecting, we also think and we say, you've loved me that much. I'm overwhelmed that you would love me. You don't need me, but you want me because of you, not because of me. Man, thank you. It's all of that and so much more. So as we come to the communion service, will you make much of Christ? Father, how, how, first of all, could you possibly have loved us this much? It is beyond all understanding that the God of the universe would love us, enemies who live as if we don't need you. And yet, through your Spirit, we've come. Father, how is it that we could forget what you've done? Would you, through your Spirit, overwhelm us afresh with the wonders of the cross? Will you bring tears to our eyes? Repentance to our heart? Hearts that are overwhelmed with thanksgiving for what you have done for us? And may this be merely a moment which reflects the very way in which we live. Father, we come to adore you. Amen.